This morning we're in, uh, this is the final sermon in a 10-part series on the life of David that we've been looking at. Uh, You can't do all of David's life, but we've taken on a chunk of it. And most of the time we spent looking at David's ascendancy to the throne, that God was leading him along, protecting him the entire way to to the place that God promised to him. And so we looked at when David selected him out of among his brothers and uh, his father's pastures, uh, we looked at a story where David squared off with God's enemies and the Lord protected him. And of course, we looked at, uh, we looked at how he actually had to go on a run, on the run. He became a refugee or a fugitive as the, the leaders of God's people chased him, pursued him to eliminate him. And, uh, and so all of that preceded him coming up to, to take his rightful place, his God-appointed place on the throne of Israel. And the natural question that we would ask, I think, as he takes his place is, what kind of king will he be? And what kind of kingdom will he build? I mean, this is a question we always ask whenever someone new comes to a place of authority or power. This is the question that we ask at the end of every election cycle, right? You know, what kind of person is this and what will they do? Uh, This is the question we ask if we get a new boss or something like that. What kind of person is this? And what kind of place will he and she uh, create for me to exist within? And that's what we're looking at this morning. Two weeks ago, we looked at a, you know, one of David's first impulses. It was to um, bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. We see that he wanted to build a kingdom that was centralized around the worship of God. And this time, we're looking at a story that tells us not just about who David is and gives us a glimpse at his character, but it also tells us a lot about the kind of kingdom that he's building. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, perhaps for the last time for a while. Not all these stories about David are this wonderful, but this one truly is. I mean, it is so sweet. And when David's at his best, like he is in this passage, we actually see Jesus. When we look at what David does, we are also looking at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let's look together. This is 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Here are the word of the Lord. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lo-Debar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lo-Debar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, 
For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to you, your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh Lord, as we lean into this sweet story, I just pray that our hearts will melt with joy for who you are. And that you'll help us to believe that this truly is a part of your character. And it teaches us about the kingdom that you're building. And will you help me? Help me to love these people well. Uh, to be, uh, to, to, to be um, consistent and laboring before them the kindness of God. And that you will give us all a picture of what it looks like to be objects of your kindness. Would you give us that sense? Help us to see Jesus during this time. I pray that you help me to love them well. And to honor you with the things that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think this happened a couple of years ago. This might be a silly story, but I'm going to try it on you. Uh, a few years ago, I was on the road with my family traveling. Can't remember exactly where, but we were in uh, a drive through line at a restaurant. I think it was a Wendy's, not sure. Uh, just getting food to just keep on the way. And we found out that we had fallen into... Uh, one of those, I think they call it pay it forward lines. Uh, I found out when the person uh, told me uh, that the person in front of me had actually paid for our meal. And then, of course, the young lady looks at me with bright eyes, asking the question, do you want to pay for the person behind you? And this was during COVID, I think. And if you were paying attention to the news, you knew that these things were like springing up all over the place. And uh, everybody paying for the person behind them and these pay-it-forward lines that sometimes could last for days on end. And it was hailed as, you know, moments of random kindness springing up all over the country. And, uh, and I remember all that I was thinking at that time was, is this going to be, like, how much? Is it, like, the person behind me, is this going to be... All I wanted was for this to be a budget-neutral move, right? That's all, that's all I wanted. And as I think back on it, you know, I, it just didn't feel all that, like there wasn't kindness in my own heart, and maybe it was just me. Maybe everybody else was experiencing kindness and generosity. Uh, maybe it's my cynicism. But it occurs to me just how hard it is to come across stories of 
pure and true kindness. Kindness that's truly generous. Kindness that's not self-serving or commodified in some way. This is actually a, a long debate. A philosophical debate that's picked up by a famous Friends episode that discusses this. And I think that's one of the reasons this story is, is just so truly wonderful. Because we're getting a picture of unblushing, unflinching, undefiled kindness. Just a pure kindness given from one person to another. But that's not actually all we're looking at. Because David says, I want to show the kindness of God to someone. So when we're looking at this story, we're not just looking at a sweet story. We're looking at something that is telling us something important about the very character of God as he gives his kindness to people that he loves. So who receives this kindness? What does it look like? And what did it cost? Those are my three points. Who receives the kindness? What does it look like? And what did it cost? First, who receives the kindness? Well, we're looking at a name that can be very hard to pronounce, and I I just guarantee you that I'm going to screw it up several times during the course of the sermon. Uh, But he's looking, we're we're looking at a man named Mephibosheth. And verse 1 tells us that David is looking for someone that's left of the house of Saul. And Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson. That would be Jonathan's son. And when we look at Mephibosheth, we're actually looking at a tragic figure. Uh, he, he's men- it's mentioned twice in this passage that he has a disability, that he's someone who's lame in both feet. He's also mentioned several times in the story of David uh, between chapter 4 and I think chapter 19. And every time he's mentioned that he's lame in, in both feet is also mentioned. It's almost like he's defined by this disability that he has. And he came across this disability through no fault of his own, but because when Saul fell in the battlefield that led to David's ascendancy to the throne, his family had to run. And so uh, his nurse, we think he fell off the back of his nurse's horse, and that's how he became disabled. And so he's living in a town as a fugitive, really, from the the new uh, regime. He's living in a town called Lodabar, which means... No pasture. And all this is because when Saul died, Mephibosheth lost his inheritance. In fact, just by the family line, he was uh, the next one after Jonathan who would ascend to the throne. He had prospects of a future. He had wealth and means and influence, a member of the royal family. And he, uh, it was all taken away from him. And I'm calling this tragic because I don't see anything in the stories of Mephibosheth in the Bible that says he did anything to deserve losing all of that. In fact, Mephibosheth's story, in a lot of ways, is a story of the circumstances of the world that we live in. That it can be extremely difficult. And that the world is full of difficult circumstances for us. And all of these are given to him just because of the family that he was born into. And because of the family that he was born into, he's also actually an enemy of David. Because conventional political wisdom at the time said when a monarchy changes, that the new monarchy eliminates all the descendants of the monarchy you just displaced. 
That, that, that would be actually considered wisdom. And the reason for that is, is because any remnant of the former monarchy could become a rallying point for anybody that sought to oppose David's rule. And so, so when David elevates Mephibosheth, he brings him into his own house. He's actually showing kindness to an enemy and a potential threat to his rule. And the obvious question as we look at this story, as we think about who, the, who is receiving this kindness, is why? Like why? What sense does it make? Well, he tells us why, going forward in verse 1, it says, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, in order to make sense of this, we have to go back. And we have to look at David and Jonathan's relationship. Jonathan, of course, was Saul's son. Jonathan was next in line behind Saul to to, uh, become heir to the throne. And Jonathan and David were best friends. I mean, they just had an incredible loyalty to each other. And as David's relationship with Saul, remember David had also a favored status in Saul's court. As they started to fall apart, we see that David and Jonathan's covenant friendship with each other remained firm. And they, they held fast to each other in friendship. And there's an incredible scene where the two of them, it looks like the last time they actually got to speak to each other, where David has to go on the run because Saul is chasing him, and they covenant with each other, and Jonathan says, I know that the Lord is with David, and he's probably the next king. And he knows that that probably means Jonathan's own death. And he, make, he makes, he asks David to, to, to give him a promise that David, in covenant loyalty, would not cut off his steadfast love. Steadfast love is the same word that's being used for kindness in this passage. That he would not cut off his steadfast love from his house forever. And so what Mephibosheth doesn't know is that even though he's the subject of a tragic story, and that even though he was born into becoming an enemy of the throne, that he is actually an object of David's covenant love before he was even born. Now, it would be easy, I think, to look at this and wonder what relevance it might have to us today. Like the idea of covenant oaths, that might seem like an ancient practice that really does no bearing on the, what, what our life with each other as a church looks, looks like, but we actually have several of these that that we practice today in our life with each other. Like some of you have become members of this church. And when you did that, you took certain vows of belonging to this church. That that you would participate in the life of this church and and that we would seek each other's good. And, and, And when we did that, we made each other objects of each other's covenant love. Some of you in this room are officers at this church, and you have taken certain vows to protect biblical fidelity and to love the people of this church well. And when you did that, you made the people in this church objects of your covenant love. A few weeks ago, we baptized a baby. Uh, We seem to do a lot of that in this church, but we baptized a sweet little baby, and... um, and the, when we did that, the parents 
took vows to raise that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They made a commitment, and you too, you, the congregation, made a commitment to be, to be a help to them. And when we did that, we made that little child who had done nothing to earn it, but we said that little child's an object of our covenant love, didn't we? did we not? And so those are the receivers of covenant love, but what does the giving of covenant love actually look like according to this passage? Well, first, I think what we see is that uh, David, the first thing David offers Mephibosheth is peace. Like Mephibosheth would be rightfully uh, scared as he got called into the king's court. Uh, Mephibosheth would be um, possibly resentful over all that David has done in his life. And so it's important that we see the first thing David says is Mephibosheth's name. And then he offers him a word of peace. He says, do not fear. And he announces his intentions immediately. I'm going to show you, the reason you're here is because I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And so with a word, David takes all the shame that was attached to to, uh, Mephibosheth's family name. And he offers him peace. He says, actually, I'm offering you peace and kindness precisely because of your family name. And so he gives him peace, but with another word, he gives him a future. Now, this is just amazing. He says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now, these would have been wealth-producing lands. That Saul was a wealthy man who had all the trappings of a king. This is, this is an amount of land that goes far beyond just being able to provide for yourself. But this is wealth-producing lands. He's establishing Mephibosheth's future. And of course, Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. He couldn't hope to take care of all that land. So David goes even further and brings along this guy named Ziba, best name ever. And Ziba has 25 capable people. What is it? 15 sons and 20 servants. That is an ample workforce that ensures Mephibosheth's future. So he gives him a future. Previously, he was hiding up north, and now he's established with people again. This is an amazingly dramatic shift in Mephibosheth's prospects that he had just a day ago. So he gives him peace, he gives him a future, and then finally he gives him status. He says, you shall eat at my table always. And verse 11 tells us the depth of significance behind this. He said, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. This is adoption language that we see again in this passage. And it is something that money can't buy. Because David bestowed on this young man the status of belonging to the royal family. This would make Mephibosheth a part of privileged conversation that would happen in the courts. It would give him unfettered access to the king. But more than anything, what David gave him was simply a place of honor. And so one of the things I want you to see here is that David doesn't just honor the promise that he made to Jonathan Remember, all he agreed to was to not eliminate Jonathan's family. But he outperformed his promise and did far more than the, uh, than the requirements of integrity. 
And that's the way it goes with covenant love. Because covenant love, as we give it to each other, doesn't just do what's required. But it compels us to give as much as we can to the object of that love. Now let me ask you something at this point. What would you call that? Going above and beyond. Giving more than what's required to someone who's done nothing to earn it. In order to establish that person's flourishing, kindness is a good word, steadfast love, generosity, undefiled generosity, of course. But to me, when I look at it, I think it's simply we're looking at a picture of grace. And listen, that's what the kindness of God looks like, is grace, unflinching grace incarnated into everyday life. And if you're at all like me, when you're looking at this passage, uh, you might be getting a little overwhelmed thinking about this. Like, is that, what, by, just by belonging to God's people, am I supposed to achieve generosity at this scale, shape and scale, you know? Is that what I've, I've, I've become obligated to? Well, in a sense, yes, we should look to give each other the peace in each other's lives. Like, we should be bringers of peace in each other's lives. And we should give each other status and dignity as fellow people who are loved by God. And we should work toward each other's flourishing in that sense. But as we look at the scale and the shape of this generosity, we realize that this is about so much more than what we can do for each other. This is actually a picture for us about what's been done to us. The Bible tells us that we were the ones who were once enemies of God. And that's, that, that we were the ones who were seeking to overthrow his rule in the world. The Bible tells us that we had little hope for our future apart from Christ because of our sin. Dead, dead in our trespasses and sins is what, the way the Bible describes us. And when we look at the generous king in this story, what do we see? We see Jesus. We see Jesus out of a sense of deep kindness and steadfast love, giving kindness to people who had done nothing to deserve it. It's almost like Jesus takes great pains to demonstrate how he is also the giver of these gifts to his people. Because when we look at the peace that David gives Mephibosheth, we should see Jesus when he was resurrected from the dead. When he first begins to go talk to his disciples and greet them, the same ones that had abandoned him in his own death, what the, some of the first words he said to them were words of peace. And in that story, he, he, gives them, he offers them peace three times. And when we see David ensuring Mephibosheth's future, we should remember that also Jesus also talked a lot about the futures of his people. Whether he was talking about judgment or vindication or salvation, it seems like Jesus, I haven't done a quantitative analysis of this, but it seems like Jesus talks about our futures almost more than anything else that he talks about. And he tells this amazing story. He was talking about our futures when he said, let not your hearts be troubled. And he begins to describe his father's state, estate. In my father's house are many rooms, and he is going there to prepare a place for you. And he says, I will come again and take you to myself, 
that you, this is your future, that you may be where I am also. A king bringing us into a royal home to live with him. That sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? And when we see David bestowing on Mephibosheth great status, we should also remember that Jesus tells us all that we have status as sons and daughters of the king. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is you. That what you see, this is what I want you to see, what you see David giving to this Mephibosheth are the same gifts that Jesus Christ has given to you. And what's interesting is these are the same gifts that God has also given to David. Because God was the one that gave David status. God was the one who ensured David's future. Last week we looked at the Davidic covenant where God says, I promise that there will always be someone uh, in your line on the throne of Israel. God was looking out for David's future. And God was the one who brought David into an era of peace where he had rest from his enemies. And so when David gives all this to Mephibosheth, look, that, he's the one who's simply paying it forward. This is, this is the witness of a chain reaction of grace. That grace begets grace. As I have been given grace, so I will give grace. That's the beauty of what we see here in this passage. And let's make no bones about it. It cost them. There's serious personal and family costs behind what David was giving to Mephibosheth. I mean, of course... By David giving away the lands of Saul to Mephibosheth, back into Mephibosheth's hands, he's giving away lands that he inherited in his victory. Okay, so he's giving away not just current wealth, but future wealth when he does this for Mephibosheth. Um, but perhaps the most striking thing to me is that he doesn't, he doesn't know anything about Mephibosheth when he does this. He didn't know anything about he didn't know anything about Mephibosheth's like loyalty or how he feels about David or anything like he very well could be. There's real risk in this. He very well could be elevating a potential rival, and then he gives him Zeba. This is big. So the word that's used to describe Zeba as a servant uh, is actually um, probably better understood as a chief steward. Like, he, his occupation is as a steward of a house. And because he has so many resources available to him, we think it's likely that he was actually Saul's former chief steward of his house. And so when David elevates Mephibosheth, gives him all of this land and money and influence at his table, he's also putting a potential sympathizer of rebellion right next to him, someone who's very, very capable. It's almost like David is threatening his own security. David seems very secure in the will of God when he does all of this. And all of that is before David even considers how his family's going to feel about this Mephibosheth being at the dinner table, right? Like, how would the other, how would the other sons feel about this, right? And it's actually looking at the state of David's family that things get really, really interesting, because we won't get to talk about this, 
But in a few chapters, it won't be long before one of David's own sons actually rebel against him. A nationwide rebellion happens. And there will be aspersions and suspicions just thrown around about where Mephibosheth falls out in all of this. But you know what we see? Is that even when one of David's own sons is disloyal to him, that Mephibosheth seems to stay true to him. That even though Ziba betrays Mephibosheth in order to seek his own gain, Mephibosheth looks like a complete wreck (laughs) during the time when David's rule seemed like it was in jeopardy. So what Mephibosheth understood was that God's kindness to him, the king's kindness to him was so overwhelmingly good that it would be foolish for him to remain anything but loyal. And listen, this, this, is, this is what deepens us in faith and holds us in loyalty to our own king. It is a deep awareness of just how good Christ has been to you. God's kindness to us leads us to repentance. Over and over and over again, we can go before the Lord confessing our sins and remembering his kindness to us. That, it, that it's his goodness to us that we trust our futures to him. That we don't have to worry about finding our status anywhere else because we have all the status that, we've been, that, that, that we need in Jesus Christ himself. And so if I could just encourage you toward one thing, this is what, if, you, if I've lost you, let me bring you back. If I could encourage you toward one thing, I want you to look at Jesus Christ. See him. Because it's in Jesus that we see the kindness of God. It's in Jesus that we see his unflinching grace given to you. And it's in Jesus that we see the cost of his kindness to you. Let me close with this. It wasn't long ago. I think it was two weeks ago. A professional athlete, NFL player named Tariq Cohen. I think he's a free agent right now. Um, But he wrote a heartbreaking essay that's available online. You can look at it. It's a tough read. You can look it up if you want. But he called it A Letter to My Younger Self. That's what it's titled. Um, And what he did in this letter was he laid out what life was like for him growing up. That that it was just very, very hard. That even when he was enjoying all the success of coming to the pinnacle of his playing career, that his dreams were being achieved, he was also undergoing at the very same time real family tragedy. And it was hard uh, with his two brothers and his mother. Uh, two brothers looking to him and his sing- single mother who was having to work all the time. I mean, family life was really hard for him growing up. And I won't go into all the details uh, of it. Um, you can read it if you want. But he said the most difficult for him thing for him when he finally arrived and was getting NFL paychecks was that no matter how hard he tried and no matter how hard he worked, No matter how much success he had on the field, he was unable to protect his brothers and his mothers from the life that he'd left behind. 
that even though he'd become somebody of considerable means, he still couldn't get, he still couldn't, he still never had what was enough in order to secure their futures forever. The, and, he, and, he, and he described just like weighty guilt that he feels because of that. Desire wasn't the problem for him. It was means. It was cost. And we can't give to each other what Jesus can give to us. Do you ever wonder if you were an object of God's covenant love? Look at Jesus. The incarnation of grace who paid the cost because you are worth it to him. Let me pray. Oh Lord Jesus, what you did. Stir us up in love for you and gratefulness for what you did. I pray that this would never be dry to us. But give us great joy as we think about you. And as we head into communion, I pray that you would help us to understand our place as your sons and daughters around your table. Would you give us that joy? I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.